Biden in Ukraine. Israel bombs Syria. Barrett in Iran. What's going on? Right here, right now, on... VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. Okay, we're back on VT Radio with the infamous Dr. Kevin Barrett. Dr. Barrett, how are you today? I'm infamous. How are you, John? <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. I'm over here in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, in the Caribbean. That's why I look a little more tan, uh, probably a little more handsome as usual, than usual. You know what I mean? Oh, you're, you're stunning. You're, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, hey, so, I, I, I need you, sunglasses to stop the brilliance emanating from your face. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, and uh, looks like you've been busy. Uh, you just got back from Iran. Uh, there's been a lot of things happening. I don't know if you heard, but uh, Biden just landed in the Ukraine. I don't know if you heard about that. Uh, I hope some they dropped him out of a B-52 without a parachute. <laughs> I just saw a picture of him and Zelensky at some palace or whatever they are in Ukraine. So that, that was an interesting They probably played a happened. piano duet together. Yeah, exactly. And of course, uh, we got the uh, Israelis striking on Syria a few days after the earthquake. I thought that was interesting. So a lot of things have been happening since you've been gone. But the thing I want to talk about first is you went to uh, David Ray Griffin's uh, memorial uh, back in California recently. Uh, I, want to, I want you to talk about that real quick because that's really important. Yeah, I just got back from that. And it was actually sort of two events back to back on Monday was John Cobb's 98th birthday party. Now, John Cobb is David Ray Griffin's mentor. So John founded what's called Process Thought in the United States, and then David sort of took it up and ran with it. And together, the two of them were an amazing intellectual force. And I think I'm working on an American Free Press article on uh, why America's leading liberal intellectual reads American Free Press. And that's John Cobb. He is America's most important liberal intellectual. He may not get the most notice from the mainstream institutions, but uh, the people who actually know what's what uh, would, I think he would win if, if, the, if pe- you know, the, the aware people ever took a vote. Uh, he, he would be the most important left-leaning or liberal intellectual. And by the way, he not only reads American Free Press, but he reads uh, Veterans Today every now and then, too. As did Richard Belzer. I, I was just transcribing this old interview I did with Richard Belzer, who just passed away, and uh, Detective I Munch noticed, from uh, Law and Order, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he played uh, the same cop character on ten different TV series, so he's a, he's a top of, <laughs> top level Hollywood celebrity. He also wrote yeah. some so called conspiracy books, meaning truthful books, and right. <laughs> he actually plugged VT in this interview. I'd forgotten that from back in 2017. So. There wow, you go. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very sad to hear about his passing. I, to be honest, I loved his work. And uh, he was one of the funniest sarcastic characters on that Law & Order. I loved, I loved that show. It was fantastic, you know. So, yeah, sorry to hear about that. And uh, tell us more about David Griffin. Uh, you were at the memorial. Uh, so how, what was that like? Uh, it, it was wonderful. It was Actually, I was kind of the token 9-11 guy there. And the, the other people there, for the most part, are at least vaguely aware of the 9-11 issue and David's work on it, but some are still not very well informed. A surprising number haven't not only haven't read all of David's books, like I have, but uh, probably haven't read any of them. And so uh, there's, you know, David, as I said, was a huge influence intellectually by way of the role he played in the process thought movement which is this philosophical school based on the thought of Alfred North Whitehead. And it is really important. I mean, it's, it's really about the only honest way out of this dilemma of you know, modernity, post-modernity. And so David did really important work in that field, along with John Cobb. And the folks in the academy who are still employed in the academy, unlike me, uh, 
they generally kind of, most of them stayed away from 9-11, but they, many of them sort of still respected Griffin. They just, they're afraid to go there. So the process people at this memorial were mostly focused on David's philosophical work on other issues. So I was the, the token 9-11 guy, and I gave a, a little talk about that. It was very well received, though. So, I mean, these are open-minded, smart people. Um, I just wish they and everybody else had more courage. Right. Let me ask you a question. Uh, since David's passing, it is 2023. It's been 22 years since 9-11. Uh, historically speaking, what is the average person going to think of 9-11 moving forward? Where is it going to sit in the historical uh, path for the future? Uh, is it going to be something people question or, or, or has it been dominated by the, by the people that wanted to hide it? Well, if it's been fully hidden in the future, then we're going to be living in the ultimate dystopia. Uh, and that's, of course, a possibility. The bad guys have been scrubbing the Internet of all uh, dissonant information, making it much, much harder to find um, anything relevant about really how the world really works and the, the psychopaths who run it. And so the psychopaths have got the power over the Internet now. And they are busily uh, working to scrub the internet and to make sure that what little truth remains on the internet is really hard to find if you don't already know it. So it's it's touch and go, you know. But when people figure this out, they often get angry and then they start making the effort to find things out. And I still think that the neocons, who are really the bad guys here, made a big mistake when they decided that they could get away with. Uh, well, 9-11, I think, was, was when they really consciously formulated their whole philosophy and then, you know, did this grand gesture uh, to, you know, basically, if 9-11 hadn't been a neocon operation, then they would have had to invent it because it perfectly summarizes their attitude towards governance, which is, this, you know, this elite governs by bamboozling the people by, you know, they see themselves as running the projector that's projecting the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave. That's their role as they see it. And so I think they made a mistake because what they're right that they can bamboozle the majority of people with those shadows, but they can't bamboozle the smartest and the best people. But a certain pretty high percentage of the smartest and or the best people will see through it. And the smartest and the best people are both, you know, the best strategists. They can you know, think the best. And they're also the most courageous. They're willing to blow themselves up for truth. They're willing to sacrifice themselves in the war for truth. So even though it may be a minority of people that see through these things, that minority is potentially very powerful. And I think the neocons screwed up by imagining that all of humanity was so lame and, uh, and, and, and cowardly that they would all just roll over for this insanity. And we see a lot of pushback now in various places. There was just that big uh, Rage Against the War Machine demonstration in D.C., which unfortunately I missed because I was hopping back and forth between Iran, California, and back home. Uh, and I'll be leaving again for Morocco soon. Uh, but uh, that demonstration was great, and it really exemplifies that not everybody is fast asleep and brainwashed. Let me ask you another question. Uh, 20 years it's been 20 years since 9-11. When I look back at the JFK assassination, it was 60 years ago, and we kind of have a general narrative about that uh, historically, about what happened. It, 40 years from now, with the kids in the future, hopefully you and I will still be around, but uh, 
might not be. 40 um, years. What, I, I don't know if I want to be around in 40 years. I'd be yeah, over 100. Yeah. But, but what will the kids of that time say about 9-11? Will they even remember it? Will, will it even be talked about? Is it something that's a JFK thing? You know? I think there's a big difference in that JFK may have started the process of this decay of the American empire, but it hadn't, it hasn't completely finished off the American empire. We've gone through half a century and the American empire has sort of muddled through getting, you know, more and more decadent, more and more confused and slowly getting weaker, but it's still there. And currently the people running it are these neocon psychopaths, um, even worse than the people in charge when JFK was killed. So uh, I, I think that part of the reason that we look back at JFK and say, well, it's all been this sort of big muddle and yeah, people sort of figured it out, but nothing's ever been done about it. Uh, yeah, I think that's largely because the people that did it took over the empire and the empire continued to exist, didn't get completely crushed. I mean, it did take some big hits uh, in Vietnam and so on. However, now I think it's, it's different. We have a credible challenger to the empire and the empire is in a kind of an existential war right now with the rest of the world in general and Russia, China and Iran in particular, and it's going to lose. There's no way they can win this war because it, it's existential for Russia and China. Uh, whether, you know, if Russia loses in Ukraine, then Russia implodes into a, you know, people die, their life expectancy plunges like it did in the 1990s, and then their country gets busted up into little pieces. And then China also gets destroyed. So Russia and China will blow up the world before they will allow the U.S. to win this war in Ukraine. And the U.S. is not stupid enough to blow up the world unless, you know, unless, yeah, it could happen, but it would it would probably be an accident. So Ultimately, the U.S. is going to lose this war, and with it, it's going to lose its global empire, and we're going to see a collapse. We're going to see a collapse in standard of living in the U.S., uh, bigger than anything in history, far bigger than 2008 or 1929, and the U.S. will emerge from this as just another country. Yeah, a big country, but just one of the world's great powers, not the unipolar hegemon. And once that happens, the elites that destroyed the empire uh, specifically the neocons, and specifically 9-11, which threw away America's good name, our soft power, and 7 or $8 trillion in wealth, plus a lot of blood, uh, in this insane adventure uh, to try to make the Middle East safe for Israel, those neocons will be chased down the street and, and strung up, like you know, George W. Bush talked about. Uh, so I think when that happens, when the U.S. empire implodes, the people that got us into the situation will be so discredited that that's when we're going to see a change. And so I think the history books, which will mostly be in Chinese, I think, and to some extent other languages, the American history books will no longer be any more important than anybody else's history books. And these history books, I don't know what they say now, but I wouldn't be that surprised if just like in Morocco, everybody knows that the JFK hit was an inside job. Everybody knows that 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, everybody knows that the Holocaust story is greatly exaggerated. Every professor I ever talked to knows all this stuff in Morocco. And all it'll take is a decline in U.S. power before the truth about these things just enters the history books everywhere, including in the new United States that's going to emerge from the rubble. Well, I have an interesting anecdotal, anecdotal, I don't know how to say the wrong word, evidence. I'm here in the uh, Maya Yucatan, and here they're building a Mayan train uh, investing billions and billions of dollars to run, uh, you know, a modern train system through the Yucatan, 
you can argue about the environmental impacts, et cetera, but they're really investing big time. And when I looked it up, 25 of the world's mega projects around the world, to only two are in the United States. And it shows me that the big, huge investments going on in the world are not in the U.S. They're in China. They're in Russia. They're in Europe. They're in Mexico. There are other places where the big bucks are going and infrastructure is being built. It's, it's a little bit of evidence that you know the future is not just the United States. And I just wanted to bring that up because I something I just found out. And I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting because U.S. infrastructure is not so good. You know, when you travel around the world, you go, wait a second. What's going on here? You know, so I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, well, there's an airborne toxic event right now in Pennsylvania or Ohio, uh, very much like the one in Dan DeLillo's White Noise, uh, which just came out as a movie to perfectly predict the event. And the, the extras in the movie from East Palestine, I wonder if that's significant, Ohio or Pennsylvania or whatever, I guess Ohio, uh, where there were extras in the White Noise movie that was a the scenario was a perfect exact replica of what really happened. This huge dark chemical cloud causing people to be evacuated after a railroad crash. Um, so that certainly is, uh, it's suspicious. And it's in any case, even if it's an accident, it is a clear uh, symbol uh, and evidence for the decline of the American empire. And as you say, the U.S. has slipped so far behind in infrastructure, especially compared to China, that obviously the writing's on the wall. You know, on a personal note, my son called me and asked me, Dad, what should I be doing? Where should I look? I said, you know what? Make your career, travel around the world, get jobs in other places in the United States, and then take your money, save it all, and invest it, uh, buy yourself a small home in a, in a different country that is up and coming. You know, for example, Mexico is going to be a top seven country in the next 20, 30 years. Perfect example of you can buy a house here for 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars. Well, you can't do that anywhere in the United States. And he's a young man who's got a future ahead of him. So when I think about the young people and their futures, I think in those terms, you know, where should they be going in the future? And the U.S. never comes up number one. It just doesn't come up number one. And I, it saddens me because I'm an American citizen and I want it to be number one, but it's not. And that's what's happening around the world. So what say you about that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think the, uh, yeah, the U.S. empire uh, had a... a pretty good run, I guess, since you know, took over the world post-World War II pretty much, and then became totally unilateral after the end of the Cold War. Uh, but it was really a betrayal of the ideals of the United States of America from the get-go. You know, we're not supposed to be an empire. We were founded as a revolt against an empire. And so, you know, imperialism has always been a dirty word for Americans. And even as late as the 1950s, we were intervening in the Suez crisis on the side of the anti-imperialist Arabs against the imperialist Israelis, British, and French. Uh, and so it's only much more recently that uh, American leaders have really come to terms with being an empire. It's, it's against our, our nature. And that's one reason I think that we do it so badly and we'll squander our empire. You know, we've done so much damage with this empire since World War II. We've killed about 60 million innocent civilians around the world, according to the book on Western terrorism by Chomsky and Volchek. And we've, you know, we, we've just been like a bull in the proverbial China shop as empires go. Of course, there have been other empires that did terrible things too. But I think, you know, here, it, only the U.S. empire is one where it pretends to be run by its own people. Yet when you approach people with the question, where should the United States invade next? And you show them a map and you say, should we, should we invade uh, Syria, and then you point to Australia on the map, and the people nod along and say, "Yeah, let's invade Syria," and they agree that it's Australia. I mean, so 
Yeah, I think I think it's long past time for the U.S. to get back to its anti-imperial roots. And when our empire implodes, uh, that'll be one of the silver linings of what will otherwise be a pretty dark cloud. Now, let's pivot. Uh, I want to talk about Biden in Ukraine real quick because he just got there today. Uh, obviously, Biden is there to do what? What is he doing a year after after this whole thing started? What, what, what do you think his objective is? Well, he might be telling Zelensky, sorry, buddy, I think it's time to cut our losses. <laughs> so that's my guess. Yeah, because basically the Russians are now in a pretty dominant position. And as I said, it's this is existential for them. So they even if they were not winning, I mean, if, if things were going badly for them, it would be even more dangerous because they'll, you know, they'll start raining down the nukes before they'll lose. But they're not, they're winning. And the, you know, the, what the kind of aid that would be necessary to prop up Ukraine much longer is it's not going to arrive. I mean, even if if they pass a lot more legislation and send even more weapons than they have, that's none of that stuff's going to get there anytime soon. So it, it looks like the Russians are poising for a pretty big offensive that'll clearly take the rest of the Donbass and who knows what else. Maybe they'll be able to continue on even to, to Kiev and uh, down to Odessa and so on. And things, you know, so so I think maybe Biden is is telling Zelensky, uh, we're going to have to accept some kind of a deal, give the Russians the Donbass, and obviously get, let them keep Crimea, which was that was always a pipe dream to try to retake Crimea anyway. So I suspect that's what's going on because I can't really think of why else he would be over there. Next question: How would Biden get out of it at home uh, and quote unquote safe face? How would he explain it to the American people? of what 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 the negotiations uh, would look like. Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's pretty easy to see how Putin can do that by saying, "Hey, we liberated the Donbass, we're keeping Crimea and we forced the West to accept that." So, you know, he does, he actually can afford to be sort of generous and uh, and not push it even further. However, that ending uh, for the US, it does pose a kind of a PR problem. On the other hand, if Biden can preside over this panicked evacuation of Afghanistan that looks like Saigon in 1973, uh, people dangling from helicopters leaving the embassy, and everybody just kind of you know yawns and you know goes back to their popcorn in the next topic, then maybe the same will happen with Ukraine. I don't know, but it's it's going to be tougher with Ukraine because they've really whipped up the propaganda. This propaganda frenzy is unprecedented. I've never seen anything like this, certainly in my lifetime. I guess maybe it was like this during World War II or World War I. I don't know. But it's uh, it's been so hyped that I think it's going to be tougher for Biden to sell this defeat, which is what it's going to be. Uh, and he may end up becoming a one-term president because of it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Uh, next question for you. Uh, Israel just bombed the Syrians a few days after the earthquake. What the heck are they doing? There was a huge earthquake in Turkey and Syria. People are suffering, and Israel's bombing Damascus. You know anything about that? Well, that's typical Israeli behavior. You know, as Lauren Guyano's article, Veterans Today, has it, uh, Israel is the psychopathic nation. In fact, people should just you know run that through an honest search engine or run it through Yandex, not Google probably, but try Yandex. Uh, Israel, the psychopathic nation. I mean, what better illustration of that could you even imagine than bombing uh, Syria after this devastating earthquake. It's disgusting. You know, what they've killed another, what, a dozen or a couple dozen people in, with this bombing. And it's the, the sanctions uh, should have been lifted, obviously, uh, the one minute after this earthquake struck. But they're still in place. The U.S. is still hindering aid to Syria. 
and then Israel is not only hindering it, but they're uh, they're bombing uh, Syria during the recovery. So again, this is a good il illustration of why the demise of the U.S. empire and with it uh, the demise of the Zionist uh, apartheid state of Israel will be a very good thing, and it can't happen soon enough as far as I'm concerned. Now, you just got back from Iran. Uh, tell us about that trip. Uh, what was that like? Uh, I, I guess you haven't been back there in a while. Is that correct? Yeah, this was my first trip since 2019, I guess spring of 2019, when I went to Meshhad, Iran, for a conference that included a bunch of former U.S. national security state people like Phil Giraldi, formerly of the CIA, uh, Mike Springman of the State Department, uh, uh, Scott Bennett of the U.S. Army and the um, anti-terrorism industry, uh, and uh, a couple others as well, I guess. So in the past, uh, these kind of guys had not gotten visas to go to any conferences in Iran. And I had told the Iranians I know that, you know, really, you, sh you guys should, you should be bringing these former, you know, U.S. national security state dissidents over here because they agree with you that blind American support for Zionism is a total, you know, it's, it's evil and it's, it's a mistake from the American perspective. Uh, and, you know, they, I think the Iranians understand that, that actually their interests and the real interests of the American people are actually not very different here. And it's the Israel that has kidnapped or taken over, hijacked American policy. So anyway, so these, these national security state guys went over there and hatched this plan to try to convince Iran to defend itself in court in the United States where a bunch of Zionist shyster lawyers representing 9-11 victims had won this huge multi-billion dollar judgment against Iran on the ridiculously spurious basis that Iran somehow had been behind 9-11, uh, which is the world's biggest joke. I mean, even if you try to blame Al-Qaeda, you know, they, those, they, they, this Wahhabis hate Iran. So the anyway, that, that came pretty close to actually working. You know, Iran... Uh, the Iranian government did take a look at that court case and thought about reversing its position uh, because their position had been, we're, we're not even going to dignify these proceedings by showing up. But then, you know, when we said, look, we could get Richard Gage of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and, and other experts into the courtroom to defend Iran on the basis that 9-11 was a false flag operation, uh, that, that would, you know, stir things up a bit in the U.S. So that came pretty close to working. And so the next thing you know, after that trip, suddenly uh, this Israeli citizen, Sigal Mendelkar, is appointed as the head of Treasury Department Sanctions Enforcement, and she sanctions the NGO that had created that conference, uh, the New Horizon Group. And so then uh, when New Horizon planned another conference, the FBI called and or visited the prospective American attendees to tell them that if they attended this conference, they would be arrested when they set foot in the United States on the after the flight home. So we decided, mm, yeah, not worth pushing that one. So none of us have been back to any of these conferences since then. And now, so you may ask, what's changed? Well, I, I think New Horizon is still is still listed as a uh, sanctioned entity, as far as I know. But I don't think it even exists anymore because Nader Talabzada, the founder, passed away. The great late great Nader Talabzada. Uh, so he passed away uh, uh, last year, uh, which, of course, was, was very sad for us. I really wanted to, you know, I, I love talking with him. He's a fascinating person, great filmmaker, Iran's number one talk show host, a regular audience, over 10 million people, really important, influential, and really good guy. 
then he passed away. New Horizons sort of, I guess, fell apart. And so we were invited this time by uh, the University of Shiraz. And the other, unfortunately, I had to come right back to the States after just three or four days to go to the David Ray Griffiths Memorial. So I never even made it to Shiraz. Uh, everybody else went, yeah, like I, we got in there on Friday and the idea was to recover from jet lag over the weekend. And then like Monday or Tuesday, I guess, go to Shiraz. But I couldn't go because I had to fly back to the States. So this whole university lecture tour thing completely fell through. But I did get to have a couple of cool moments there. I got to visit the Aerospace Museum and see the drones, the American drones that Iran has shot down. So I wrote a piece about that, published at VT. And uh, I got to see uh, one friend of mine. I have a very good friend there. He's not sanctioned, by the way. <laughs> and uh, and I, so I got to spend a lot of time with him. So it was, it was a good trip. But from the standpoint of my university lecture tour, it was kind of pathetic. Ouch. I'm sorry to hear that. So uh, were you in Tehran? Did you end up Yeah, I, I ended up just staying in Tehran because I I, did, I couldn't catch the, the trip to Shiraz. Did you catch any differences, uh, anything on the ground that's changed since the last time you were there, or is this pretty much the same? Well, you know, what's interesting now is that the, you know, what they're not reporting here is that this whole business of the, you know, the American weaponization of this hijab issue, which, yeah, it's an internal issue in Iran that a certain, you know, not, some Iranians would like to see the mandatory hijab or headscarf for women rolled back and others support it. So the CIA with its destabilization efforts, and of course the Israelis and so on, they try to use this issue to stir up trouble. But it turns out what's really been going on over there is not, you know, you may have noticed in the American mainstream reports, they never tell you how many Iranians show up at these so-called anti-government demonstrations. Well, there's a reason they don't tell you, because the numbers are really small. Uh, the biggest one that ever happened this year was in Tehran, and it attracted a grand total of somewhere around 600 people. Meanwhile, pro-government demonstrations regularly roll out numbers over a million. Uh, for example, while I was there, well, actually, right after I flew home, there was the celebration of the anniversary of the revolution, and that drew and always draws well over three million. Um, and there had been a pro-government, I think there was a pro-government demonstration uh, last fall that also got something over a million. So we're, what we're talking about is like a few hundred uh, people go out there when the CIA infiltrates social media, and they they have you know they they own you know millions or billions of dollars worth of Persian language broadcasting, which ceaselessly broadcast propaganda into Iran, trying to get people angry at the government there. And so they made this big effort to try to build this campaign against the headscarf. And uh, it was all based on complete BS. You know, they, a woman died uh, while she was in traffic ticket court, which is the kind of court that they have there for that. And she, just, you know, the video shows that she was in perfectly good shape and had never, you know, no signs of being ill-treated in any way, shape, or form. And she wanders around. She does this, she does that. And then at some point, she, she just like keels over. It's like one of these died suddenly type things that we see on athletic fields and such. I don't know whether she had the jab. But in any case, uh, yeah, th th there was no sign whatsoever that any kind of brutality had anything to do with that death. And so the, all these lies ended up getting just tiny little handfuls, relatively, of Iranians into the streets at these protests. And uh, then the government in Iran to make, you know, they didn't want this to spin out of control or to give their enemies any extra ammunition. So what they did was they stopped enforcing the headscarf. You know, because there are a lot of Iranians actually who agree with that, including, you know, conservatives like uh, Ahmadinejad. Uh, so they stopped enforcing it. 
So now in Iran, you actually can see some women without a headscarf because it's not enforced anymore. However, it's a tiny minority. Like in the airport, you might see, uh, yeah, a fair number, like maybe, you know, 5%, right? You know, maybe about one out of every 20, maybe one out of every 15 women uh, in the Tehran airport is not wearing hijab. You go out onto the streets and yeah, in the part of Tehran I was in, you have to walk pretty far before you see anybody not wearing hijab. Uh, but there are a few. And then up in North Tehran, where the rich, spoiled, secular uh, people who like America <laughs> and who have relatives in America live, maybe there are more. I don't know. But anyway, it was kind of interesting because when I was there before, like all women pretty much respected this, even by putting a little tiny ribbon of cloth on the back of their hair or something, calling that a hijab. But now the ones who don't want to wear a hijab don't even bother. But what our media doesn't tell you is that's like maybe at the most like one out of 20 or 30 Iranian women. So 29 out of 30 or so uh, support the hijab and wear it, even though it's no longer mandated. That's interesting that Americans were so, never told So that. most people there are, are very conservative. They're proud to do it. They, they're happy to do it. And But if you don't really want to do it, you don't really have to do it. Is that what we're doing well, right no, now? Well, I, I don't think it's quite that simple. I, I, I would guess that about half of the Iranian population, a little over half, 55, maybe 60% of the population is basically culturally conservative. Uh, and so those people, yeah, they, they're all in favor of hijab. They're going to always wear the hijab. Then there's another segment that may not actually support it, the more sort of generally Western, educated, and sort of urban element uh, that uh, is kind of halfway, you know, they, they're not that crazy about it. They might, you know, think that it, like Ahmadinejad said, maybe it'd be better not to have it mandatory, um, but they don't have super strong feelings about it. So, and then there's this tiny little minority that really doesn't like it, right? If, uh, but that's, that's just a minuscule minority. And again, the U.S. has really gotten in bed with the wrong political forces in Iran, right? We, uh, we're in bed with the 1% that really doesn't like the hijab. We're in bed with the MEK, the world's worst and most psychotic terrorist group. That's like Charles Manson meets uh, ISIS on steroids, the MEK. And then we're in bed. Psychopaths. Yeah, total yeah. psychopaths. I mean, it's like it's a cult. Like the woman who runs it, uh, she forces people to get married. She just randomly picks, okay, you guys go get married, and stuff like that. It's, it's a total cult personality cult. And they're Marxist, just extreme. They're like Pol Pot, really. And I, they, they make Pol Pot actually look relatively sane by comparison. And that's who the U.S. is trying to use to overthrow and replace the Iranian government. Why is the U.S. so darn still doing this? I mean, it's not in our best interest, but yet still doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole and, and then the other group the U.S. is supporting there is the Shah's supporters, the royalists. And yeah, they're, I mean, that's just, they're probably like, you know, five or 10% of the Iranians that kind of like the royalists because they're, hey, we're, we're Persian, you know, we're, we're, they're nationalist types and they identify the monarchy with the great nationalist tradition of the Persian empire, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, there's a few that sort of like it, but the vast majority of Iranians have no use whatsoever for that idiot monarchy that they overthrew in 1979 that the CIA put in power, you know, back in 1953. So, you know, we're in bed with, with these really little minority groups in Iran that nobody has any use for over there. And maybe maybe the people in Hollywood, you know, California, the Iranian Gusano immigrants have some use for them. But the people in Iran have no use for them whatsoever. So this is totally counterproductive. And if you really want Iran to change, just leave it alone. And guess what? You'll have a lot better chance of it changing in the ways that you would like than with what you're doing. Now, how would you tell the American people who are listening to this and people around the world 
uh, because most of us have never been to Iran. 99% of the people that, were, that are listening here never going to go, may never go. Uh, I'd love to go. I hope to go. Uh, but tell us, what's it really like? I mean, uh, what's your experience on the streets? Uh, food's good? Yeah, the food is fantastic. Uh, yeah, Persian cuisine is, is excellent. I mean, there's a lot of shish kebab. You know, if you don't oh, like shish kebabs, maybe shish you wouldn't be that crazy about it, right? If you're <laughs> love first, shish kebab, so, what are you talking about? <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole yeah. region is is pretty big on shish kebab, and yeah. uh, there's uh, cucumber salads, uh, uh, all kinds of really cool sauces, um, all kinds of fruit. Uh, so it's it's it, yeah, the, the Persian cuisine is great. Um, how about if the burnt I had, rice? On, on, you ever heard of that burnt rice? I can't remember what they call it. Uh, there's a name for that. I don't remember. Yeah, they, 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 they do serve a, rice. They, take a, they have a rice and it burns on the bottom from the oil or the butter or something. And it's huh. really amazing. Like crusty. Have you heard of that one? No, I don't think I ever had that. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. But yeah, uh, the anyway. cuisine, a lot uh, of the cuisine is, is sim- somewhat similar to Turkey. Like they, they have this yogurt drink. And in, let's see, what are the, in Turkey, it's called Iron. And in Iran, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called in Iran, but uh, Dug, it's called Dug. Uh, so, so yeah, in a lot of ways, you're, you know, from just a very superficial observer's standpoint, Iran is a lot like Turkey. It's got a pretty booming economy for a Middle Eastern country, and it's got uh, a, a similar kind of cuisine. Um, there's, I guess, the terms of the governance models, they're quite different. And, you know, there was that the his, historically, they follow very his, different historical trajectories. But if you're just kind of looking around in Iran uh, at, you know, what you see on the streets and stuff and what you're seeing in the restaurants, it's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of related to, you know, not that different really from what you might see in Turkey. Now, how about communication? Are you able to speak in uh, Persian? Do you say Chetori or do you speak English and they understand you? You know, I've, I've kind of given up on, you know, like uh, I have so much progress I need to make in my Arabic. I do. I would love to get good enough in Arabic that I can actually do live interviews in Arabic. Ah. Uh, and I'm not there yet. And then I also kind of have to keep up my French and my Spanish. And I already have a little Italian. And I would hate to lose that. So I've got, you know, in terms I, it's too a lot, late in a lot life. Of your table. <laughs> yeah, the only way I'm ever going to learn learn uh, Farsi is if I have to go and like you know apply for uh, refugee status there or something, which uh, inshallah right. won't happen. Yeah. Now, how about uh, communicating with the people there? So, uh, how many people speak English enough on the street to get along, or you had a lot of trouble getting along? Well, yeah, English is not very developed. It's uh, in that sense, it's it is actually yeah, it's kind of like Turkey, or it, perhaps even fewer people there know English. So that is an issue. And even the folks that we deal with in these, you know, the institutions like the universities and stuff, uh, a lot of them are not real fluent in their English. They don't get a chance to use it all that much. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a challenge, but um, there's definitely, there is some, but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's really shockingly different from like Morocco, for example, where everybody has a little English and everybody has good French, and many of them have enough Spanish. A lot of them have really good Spanish, and the rest know a little bit. So it's easy to communicate in Morocco, but not in Iran, not so much. Speaking of Morocco, uh, so you're te- you're heading out back to Morocco now, huh? What's going on over there? Yeah, just taking a, a just visiting uh, relatives in Morocco, and maybe writing up something. I'll keep you posted on that. Are you going to go to the uh, what, what city? Are you going to? Uh, going through Ujda, which is where my wife is from. 
and uh, also Sadia on the coast of Morocco, and possibly over to Rabat, Casablanca at some point with a possible stop in Fez. Fabulous. So you got a little little vacation, you could say. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's it's personal stuff, you know, seeing family, and uh, we, like I said, I might I might also find something to write about. Perfect. Okay. And on that note, I, I want to thank you for being on VT Radio today. We're building bridges. I mean, uh, uh, you're a trailblazer. You're going out to Iran and and building that bridge between those our country and their country, and saying, you know, hey, I'm here. I, I just have the ultimate respect for you, and I wish more people would do that and, and break out and say, let's let's build those bridges and stop burning them down. You know what I mean? It really bothers me when I hear that. You know, so because we're every, everybody's people, we're all people. You know, and people just want to be people. Um, and good. And there's people really, there's good really people no reason for U.S. hostility towards Iran. None. No. No good reason whatsoever. There's no reason why the United States should not radically reverse its policy. And basically go begging to the Supreme Leader for forgiveness for what we've done. And guess what? He would grant that forgiveness overnight and our countries would be the best of friends. It, it could happen very move easily. On. Yep. We'll, we'll, we'll do business and everybody exchange. Yeah, all, uh, all we have to do. There's only one thing we would have to do. And that is accept that Iran is going to support the Palestinians. And right. yeah, the American government could just say, okay, we're going to support Israel. You support the Palestinians. We'll just agree to disagree on that. And... We're friends. Like, why, why should that issue completely poison the entire relationship? It's ridiculous. It's incredible. Well, I'm hoping for a better future. We'll keep we'll keep fighting for it, Dr. Barrett. Again, I want to thank you for being on VT Radio. Tell us again how people can reach you, how they can support what you're doing. Please tell us that information right now. Well, I'm at truthjihad.com, and my substack is kevinbarrett.substack.com. Perfect. Okay. So everybody listening out there, don't forget to support Dr. Barrett and all his efforts. The man's building bridges around the world and uh, let's get on it. Okay. So have a nice day, Dr. Barrett. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, John. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.